Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tates Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Uh, turn with me in to Acts chapter 7. Uh, one quick correction. Uh, Mark said earlier that there is no gospel story time. There is gospel story time. I don't know. Apparently somebody stepped it up or you didn't know what you were talking about. But, <laughs> probably the latter. But, uh, there is gospel story time. So, it, uh, kids, what is it, four through kindergarten. Something like that. Kids can go. And, uh, and, and we'll, we'll bring them back for communion. <coughs> um, so I did not preach last week. This sermon was supposed to be preached uh, last week. I called Mark in the middle of the night. I could not talk. Uh, the flu has hit the Cunningham home, but I think we've turned the corner. The problem was that it turned into bronchitis for me and um, could not talk without coughing. So I have pretty much gotten over that. My only warning is that uh, my sound man is going to be quick on the mute button if I go into a, a coughing fit, so you don't have to hear me hack it up. So I'll just, just be patient while I cough, and we'll move on. I promise he'll mute it, and you don't have to listen to me. Um, Acts 7, we're returning to our series in Acts, verses 54 through 60. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The word of the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would come and visit your people. Man does not live on bread alone but by the words from your mouth that we believe are inspired in this book that we're going to spend a half hour meditating upon. Would you feed our souls? We're hungry. We are hungry to hear from you. And Lord, we we know, and I more than anybody here, I know that I have no ability to feed your people. But we also believe um, that when a minister in the context of worship 
opens your word and proclaims it, that your spirit is at work in unique ways. And so we trust that promise. We trust you, spirit, working in and through the preaching of your word that we would be different because we came to church this morning. Lord, make it so. I pray you would give me the strength that I need to preach it well. Practically speaking, pray that you sustain my voice and that I would not be in the way of your word going forth. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, we're two weeks removed from what was an amazing conference together as a community. Um, Incredible fellowship, incredible teaching, incredible discussion, all around this idea of with. God with us, us with God. It was a rich and fulfilling weekend together around this blessed, unique promise that Christians have that we can actually be with God. And then we return to Acts. And in God's providence, it happens to be the passage detailing Christianity's first martyr as Stephen is stoned to death. And I was struck... Again, I was planning on preaching this sermon directly on the heels of the conference, but still applies. I was struck by the contrast of the conference and this passage. This wonderful time of fellowship together, exploring the idea of being with God, and then Stephen is stoned to death. What a contrast. Or is it? You know, we talked about the meaning of with quite a bit, but one thing we didn't get into is the cost of with. But make no mistake, with comes at a cost. If you want to be with Jesus, then Scripture is clear that you're going to have to suffer with Jesus. So lest we imagine with as some pie-in-the-sky prosperity promise, our passage this morning is going to bring us back down to reality. I still maintain that nothing is better than being with God in Christ Jesus. And yet we need to be realistic about what that will mean for all of us. And that's what our passage is going to do for us. And we're going to see it in two ways. Two things. We will suffer like Jesus, and we will suffer with Jesus. First, let's just deal with the fact that we have to suffer and suffer like Jesus. Verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Now, what are these things that they heard? If you recall, a few weeks ago, we looked at all 53 verses of Stephen's speech. And in it, he masterfully tells the story of Scripture, but then at the end shows that all of it ultimately was about Jesus. Simply put, before the Jewish authorities, Stephen went all in on Jesus. And it's this bold declaration of Jesus that they are now responding to in our passage. Look at their reaction. They were enraged. That's a good translation of the Greek. The Greek is very strong there. They are furious. And they ground their teeth at him. And yet, unflinchingly, Stephen doubles down on Jesus. Verse 53. 
But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he describes the glory of God this way. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is meant to mirror Jesus himself during his trial. If you recall, Jesus kept silent before every accusation they brought before him, thus fulfilling what Isaiah said about him, that, that like a lamb is silent before its shears, so he opened not his mouth. So all these accusations, and, and Jesus was completely silent, except when the high priest straight up asked him, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, I am. And, Stephen's language in his speech, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. That is apocalyptic language from the book of Daniel that Israel recognized as a divine claim of a divine Authority, And it is this statement that caused the high priest to say, enough is enough, crucify this man. Now likewise, here Stephen is given a vision of Jesus at the right hand of God. And it's the same words that caused the same response from the high priest. They say, enough is enough with this blasphemy from Stephen. Verse 57 They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Now hold the next clause to the side. We're going to come back to it. It's a very significant clause. We'll come back to it. It says, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. Now look at verse 59 and watch as the parallels to Jesus and his death continue. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now, if you're familiar with the crucifixion of Jesus, then those words should sound very familiar to you. They're nearly direct quotes. Just like Stephen, on the cross, Jesus committed his spirit to the Father, and he pled for the forgiveness of those executing him. Again, this is all meant to be an obvious parallel to the sufferings of Jesus. Now, the question we should ask of this is why? Why go, why does Luke go to such great lengths to show how Stephen's death mirrors the death of Jesus? Well, as I said a few sermons ago, when Stephen was introduced... I noted that he is going to serve as a prototype of Christian persecution. So the first death in Acts is meant to be an example, not just of what's going to happen in Acts, but what is going to happen to the church throughout history. He is a prototype. In his example, we learn what we should expect as followers of Jesus. And what his example is showing us is very simple. If we follow Jesus, then we should expect to be treated like Jesus. What we see in Stephen is exactly what Jesus promised in his last words to his disciples. John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If you are of the world... 
then the, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The last words of Jesus to his followers. And he wasn't kidding about that. Stephen's story is meant to show the fulfillment of the only promise from Jesus that none of us wants to come to pass. We love every promise from Jesus, except the one that says the world's going to treat us like they treated Jesus. But Stephen is here to show us in Acts, to show the church throughout history. Stephen is here to show us that to have all the other promises of Jesus, we must accept this promise too. Now, when we apply this passage to our lives, and this is going to be a stumbling block throughout Acts. When we apply this passage to our lives, it raises an obvious question. Why aren't we being treated this way? If this is what Jesus promised to all of his followers, well, how come we're not being treated this way? I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody who's been dragged out of the city and stoned to death. Certainly, there are brothers and sisters around the world being killed for following Jesus, and we dare not forget their person. There's much more bloodshed being done right now in this century than there was in the first century. We don't want to forget their plight. But what are we to make of this passage in comfortable, prosperous American society? I have two answers to that common question. The first is that not all persecution comes in the form of martyrdom. In Luke 6, Jesus says this, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, and when they spur your name on account of me. Now that sounds like what we're up against. People will hate you, exclude you, revile you, spurn your name. That sounds a lot like post-Christian Western society to me. We're not being stoned, but absolutely we are being excluded and reviled and maligned. So the greater point is very simple. If you choose to follow Jesus, they will treat you like Jesus. For some, that means they will kill you like they killed Jesus. For others, that means they will hate you like they hated Jesus. They will malign you like they maligned Jesus. They will slander you. They will exclude you. They will marginalize you. In the most basic sense, the world was against Jesus. And if you follow Jesus, the world will be against you. But even then, for many of us, we're still not able to relate. I don't feel this great hatred and revile and exclusion and marginalization from the world. Well, that leads to my second point, my second answer to the question of where's the persecution. And it's in our text. Look at verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, look at verse 57. They cried out with a loud voice. And what do they do? They stopped their ears and rushed together at him. There's an obvious point here that is oh so important for American Christians to notice. Stephen is being persecuted because he opened his mouth and testified about Jesus. When they heard these things... They stopped their ears. They don't want to hear this. You will be hated on account of Jesus when you actually talk about Jesus. The famous quote attributed to St. Francis, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words. 
Love the quote, understand the sentiment behind the quote, used it myself, and yet that quote is rubbish. There is no preaching of the gospel apart from words. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of the Lord. You could be the nicest moral person in the world. You could perfectly embody the fruit of the Spirit, but never name the name that is above all names, and you will not face persecution from the world. You will be looked upon as a model citizen of society, a nice neighbor that everybody likes. But the moment you name Jesus, the moment you speak of his exclusivity and ethics, the moment you call upon the world to repent and follow Jesus, you do that and you will discover how much the world really does hate Jesus and his followers. So my answer to the question is, where is the persecution that Jesus promises us? Where is this Stephen experience in our lives? My my biggest, question, my biggest answer is that it's waiting for you. Go talk about Jesus and find out for yourself. So Stephen's example is put forth as fulfillment. Fulfillment of the one promise from Jesus that nobody wants to come true. The world's going to treat us like the world treated Jesus. Now, the, the aside that I said when I introduced Stephen, and I'm going to say again today, and I'll keep saying is... Jesus was persecuted on righteousness' sake. They hated Jesus. That's true. But they didn't hate Jesus because he was mean. They didn't hate Jesus because he was a jerk. So we don't baptize all persecution for the world. It might be a deficiency in us, right? Same is true of Stephen. There's nothing he did here personally in his personality. He's he's praying for the forgiveness of his executioners, for heaven's sake. They're hating him for Jesus. So hatred from the world for Jesus, not because I'm mean and people don't like me that's my side now huge question the question our passage is demanding that we ask with all of that being said with Stephen as our example with this promise of Jesus of hatred from the world enormous question why would anyone follow Jesus I'm not scared to ask that question nor should you If you're not a follower of Jesus, then I think you are right to say that. Why would I ever sign up for this? Aren't you supposed to be getting me to like Jesus? Why would I ever follow this Jesus? It's a really good question. Quite frankly, it's a question that many churches don't force you to ask anymore. But Jesus did. Jesus said, you better count the costs before you follow me. Because I come at an enormous cost. So yes, I am being as honest with you as possible. To follow Jesus is to embrace enmity. And if you are a follower of Jesus, perhaps you're asking, what have I gotten into? What was I thinking? Life would be a lot easier if I didn't do the Jesus thing. And you know what? You're right. Your life would be a lot easier if you were not a follower of Jesus just not better. Which brings us to our next point. To everyone, those resisting Jesus or those following Jesus, let me proclaim to you that Jesus, in the end, is worth it. The first point is that we have to suffer like Jesus. The second is that we get to suffer with Jesus. 
Why would anyone ever choose to suffer for Jesus? Because those who do receive the honor of suffering with Jesus, to use the language of our conference. There are three promises here that I want us to see. Let me tell you what they are up front and then show you each of them from the passage. The promise in suffering is with, the theme of our conference. We are promised to be with him in his presence, his purposes, and his perfection. Let me show you each of those in the passage. So the first reason, you get Jesus. You get his presence. When Stephen pleads to the heavens, it almost perfectly mirrors Jesus on the cross with one important distinction. Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When Stephen prays, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus asks to be received in the presence of the Father, but Stephen asks to be received in the presence of Jesus. The connection is the connection Dr. Doriani made during our conference, that to be with God ultimately is to be with Jesus, union with Jesus. Jesus is our means of access to the presence of God. And so what we ultimately want is Jesus. Well, what we see here is that if you want Jesus, then you're going to have to suffer with Jesus. If you want his presence, you have to take up his suffering. There's an amazing verse in Romans chapter 8 that states this. Definitively, we are children of God. Now, if you're a Christian, you're used to that language. But you're not used to the implications of what it means to be a child of God. Paul says, you are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Do you know what that is saying? We are beneficiaries. We are inheritors of triune fortune. Co-heirs with the second person of the Trinity. What belongs to Jesus now belongs to us as children of God. And what belongs to Jesus, the inheritance he has for us, is God himself. We have fellowship within the perfect fellowship of the Trinity. Absolutely amazing promise. We inherit God, the presence of God. But without missing a beat, Paul qualifies the promise with this. Heirs with God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. You don't get the reward of Christ without suffering of Christ. Or to state it positively, if you will embrace the sufferings of Christ, then you shall receive the reward of Christ. And the reward is the fullness of with. But it's not just his presence that we are promised here. It's also his purposes Now return to verse 58, which I told you to hold aside. That's what I told you to hang on to. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now it's no coincidence that we are introduced to Saul for the first time during Stephen's martyrdom. Saul was a powerful Jewish leader of the time, thus the, the laying of the garments at his feet, honoring him in that way. But as we will see... And you probably know, Saul becomes Paul, as in the Apostle Paul, as in the one who wrote half the New Testament and took the gospel forward to the ancient world. Stephen knew none of that as they were stoning him. 
All Saul was to Stephen was a radical zealot doing everything he could to put an end to this Jesus movement. But little did Stephen know that his suffering would plant the seed that would soon yield the world's greatest missionary. And this raises an important point for us. More than anything else, and I use those words intentionally, that's not hyperbole. We see this in scripture. More than anything else, God uses suffering for his purposes. Definitely for his purposes in you. We become different. We become more like Jesus through, through the pains of suffering. But he uses your suffering more than anything else for his purposes in the world. There is a uniquely compelling testimony hidden within our suffering. And it's this. It is easy for the world to ignore a cheap gospel with a Jesus that costs us nothing. How is that impressive? But when we suffer for Jesus, when we embrace any and all costs, including our own lives for the sake of Christ, well, then Christ is shown as deeply compelling. It's one thing to say Jesus is better than everything. But it's another thing for people to see that lived out in our lives. And so I just imagine Saul, the zealot Pharisee, wanting to stop all this Jesus stuff that's taking over the ancient world. And I'm imagining him watching as Stephen is being stoned to death, an incredibly painful and gruesome death, crying out about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, crying out for the forgiveness of those killing him. I can just imagine Saul in his mind saying, whoa, this is different. Who is this Jesus that people will die like that? He's about to meet this Jesus. This is why the gospel is stagnant stagnant in the comforts of the West, but is exploding in other parts of the world where persecution is a daily reality. China, Middle East, North Africa. This is where revival is taking place, people. This is where the gospel is exploding because this is where Christians are laying down their lives to show that Jesus is better than life. And so the question really comes down to this. Are the purposes of God more important than your own comfort? Which means more to you? Your comfort or the world's conversion? Which do you value more? But as you wrestle with that question, I'm not going to have you answer that question yet because i got one more thing to say. As you wrestle with that question, do so in the light of this third and final promise, not just with Jesus in his presence, not just with him in his purposes, but also with him in his perfection. Here we turn to the odd conclusion of Stephen's story. Very easy to miss, but very, very intentional. Look at the last words of verse 60. And when they had said this, he fell asleep. That's strange. He did not take a nap. He died. Not according to the gospel, though. From the beginning, 
Christians, from resurrection of Jesus onward, Christians began to implore a strange verbiage to their own deaths. Nobody who follows Christ dies. They just fall asleep. That language is all over the New Testament, including a lot of the letters of Saul, who becomes Paul. And the reason for this is that they were utterly convinced that God was going to wake them up. So convinced in the resurrection that they refused to even use the word death. We could learn something from them. And herein lies the ultimate reason we can suffer for Christ. We shall be raised with Christ. And our resurrection will be like Christ's resurrection. We will not be raised like Lazarus was raised by Christ. Raised to a a corruptible, fallen existence only to die again. No, no, no. We will be raised by Jesus like Jesus. And when you look at his resurrection, what you see is perfection. Our resurrection will be our perfection. Perfect bodies, perfected souls, perfected longings, perfected desires, perfected thoughts, perfected actions, all within a perfected creation. So the real question is, can you suffer for Jesus now, knowing that Jesus soon will make all things new? Knowing that, to quote Revelation, Jesus will wipe every tear from every eye, and there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. For behold, the former things, meaning your sufferings, have passed away. Now, passed away is the language of death. That's what we use, right? So and so has passed away. The way the Bible views it is that it's death that will pass away. We've only fallen asleep. The former things have passed away. It's not we who die, our suffering dies. Stephen didn't pass away. He fell asleep until the time when Jesus wakes him up only to discover that his suffering has passed away. So viewing our suffering in light of the resurrection, there's no such thing as suffering. At least lasting suffering. Every sacrifice in the name of Jesus will come undone by the resurrection of Jesus. And not only will it be restored, it will be glorified. One of the most amazing things about the resurrected body of Jesus Christ is that it still had his wounds. Still the nail prints, still the nail prints in his hands, still the spear in his side that Thomas touched. But those scars were now his glory, they were his boast. And so will it be for us. Our perfected estate by the resurrection of Jesus will in some way bear the marks of every suffering in Jesus' name. Every cross we bear will become a jewel in the crown that we will wear. Talk about motivation to embrace suffering. The greater the cost, the greater the glory. So why not go forth constructing our future glory with this present suffering? So in review, why suffer for Jesus? Good question. Because in our suffering we are promised with, with him in his presence, in his purposes, and ultimately in his perfection. Now, with that case being made, the passage being preached, here's my question of application for all of us. 
is with worth the cost? You know, following Jesus sounds like a great idea until they start treating you like Jesus. And what we have seen in the example of Stephen is that that should be our expectation. And so I ask you again, being as honest as I can be, that they're going to treat you like Jesus. Is with Jesus worth the cost of Jesus? Count the cost, brothers and sisters. If you follow Jesus, I cannot promise you comfort. In fact, I promise you the opposite. I cannot promise you security. In fact, I am here to promise you the opposite. I cannot promise you your best life now as the most famous preacher in America has written in his best-selling book. In fact, I can promise you your worst life now. I have no prosperity to promise you this morning. Instead, I give you only one expectation, the cross. That's a quote from Jesus. If anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself and pick up his cross. So now, with the more sobering view of the Christian life before you, I ask you, is with worth it? All the Bible allows me to promise you is that within your sufferings for Jesus lays the promise of with Jesus, with his presence, with his purposes, and with his perfection. So I suppose the real question of questions is whether Jesus is worth it. Is Jesus worth the cost of Jesus? But as you answer that question, do so in light of the question that Jesus himself had to answer, which was this. Was with you worth the cost? You know, Jesus too faced the cost of with. What would it cost for Jesus to be with you? His hatred from the world. His malignment. His antagonism. His persecution. And yes, of course, his martyrdom. And yet without hesitation for the joy set before him, Jesus embraced the cost of with you. Do you know who I think really enjoyed our conference last week? Jesus. Because clearly there's nothing he wants more than to be with us. So a conference of his beloved that he died to be with learning and recommitting themselves to be with him, what could be better in the eyes of Jesus than to be with you? Clearly, the cost of with you was worth it to Jesus. May the cost of with Jesus be worth it to you. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that we were worth the cost, and we come now to the table of your cost. Every time we eat and drink, we proclaim the Lord's death until you come. And so proclaim to our hearts that we were worth the sacrifice. And may it then strengthen us to go forth, embracing any and all sacrifices, followers of Jesus, because that we know this is the cost to be with you, and this is a cost we are willing to bear. We love you, Jesus, more than life, more than possessions, more than health, more than friends, more than family. We love you. Strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.